Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 6th, New Book Day, Tuesday, uh, 2023. And we're having a new Russia fiction and fact book day. Earlier today, I talked with Paul Goldberg, who has a new novel out, The So-Called Crime and Punishment for the Jews, a book called The Dissident, which is very much built on a real story in 1976 of a visit to Moscow by the then Secretary of State, uh, a certain uh, Heinz Alfred Kissinger, otherwise known as Henry Kissinger, had uh, Paul Goldberg on the show. Henry Kissinger, who was 100 earlier this month, wasn't available. Uh, but today we're, or a little bit later, we're reversing things. There's another book out about another real event in Russian history. It's by an author called Josh Haven. It's called The Siberia Job. It's a book in fictional terms about a Texan businessman called John Mills, who in 1994 was sick of London, sick of banking, and homesick for Texas. So he abruptly quits his job with an investment bank, buys a plane ticket to Dallas, but a chance encounter with a slick check turns his life upside down and takes him on a wild and sometimes scary escapade to Siberia. As it happens, the real edition, the real version of that man is my guest today on the show. Uh, he is the fact figure at the heart of the Siberia job fiction. His name, uh, as it happens, I don't think he's related to Henry Kissinger, is John Kleinheinz. And he is a big time uh, financial guy, very much involved with Stanford University, the CEO of Kleinheinz Capital Partners. And he's joining us today. John, uh, history works in ironic ways, doesn't it? It certainly does. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. You're not a, you're a rather, I'm going to say shady guy, but it's hard to figure stuff out about you. I went to Kleinheinz Capital Partners and I didn't get a lot of information, John. Tell me about you and your career. It's quite unusual. Well, I, I, I haven't had a high profile um, um, in my career. I, I went into the hedge fund business in 1993 as a junior partner where I ran the, the Russia fund with a, uh, another fellow from Texas. Um, in 96, I went out on my own and started my own fund. Um, you know, we, we, we had a lot of success. Um, we started with a million dollars and I think, you know, we, we, we peaked um, at, at well over 4 billion. Um, um, we had we had very good returns, and in two thousand, to, uh, to put that mildly, John, to take a, an investment of of what a million and turn it into four billion, how do you do that? Well, I mean, that's not that's not the, the way the math works. I mean, we we had investors that came in along the way. I think we raised a net of seven or eight hundred million dollars. So, um, you know, it wasn't all gains, but but you know, a, a lot of it a lot of it was. Um, you know, the hedge fund business changed a lot. I was one of the early people. There and, and in 2014, I decided to um, give all the money back to my investors. And I, I still run a hedge fund. I still run Kleinheinz Capital, but it's 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 a family office now. Right. So uh, as I found from Reuters, you you decided to liquidate. Although uh, I'm guessing it was because uh, you'd made so much money, you 
you could return the investment. Is that right? In, in part, we, we did well, but it was also just it, it was difficult. It was difficult running the business. It was becoming more institutionalized. Investors were kind of coming in and out and I was losing capital at precisely the time I needed it most. And 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 it just wasn't a good business model for me. And I enjoy investing, but but having a lot of investors complicated my life. So um, I did what a lot of managers do. I, I, I formed a family office. So how much of this fictional John Mills, this businessman, this invention in 1994, um, uh, Josh Haven's invention, how much of it is based on your real life? You know, it, it's it's largely based on my life. I would I would say this our the storyline in this book, which which is true, the, the, the plot and the story are, are true. But there were, you know, there were hundreds of characters involved in this particular investment strategy, and and a lot of the characters are compilations. I mean, I'm a number of the stories that that involve me and involve my my former partner and other people as well. But but it's it's largely based on my life and my experience and what I did in Russia. And this is in part your project. You came up with the idea of the Siberia job, and then you found a writer. Is that fair, Josh? That's correct. Why didn't you write it yourself, John? You're a Stanford boy. You're smart. You could you could have written it. Yeah, you know, I, I can I can write a pretty mean business memo, um, but you know, I wanted to write a, a a story that would sell books and would would be entertaining. And um, you know, I I know what my strengths are, and I'm not you know I'm not a writer. You know, a lot, most you know most people in my position hire ghostwriters, um, so. There's nothing unusual about the way I. Uh, and why make it a, a novel? Bill Browder, oh, I think, has blurbed your book. He's become very well known. He, like you, was a former investor in America, uh, in in Russia, who made a lot of money. Politically very controversial, maybe more visible than you. But he, he he's mostly written nonfiction. Why not just write your memoir? You know, um, you know, Bill's a very good friend of mine. I knew Bill. Bill and I were both bankers in London before the Berlin Wall, wall fell. We were, you know, we were both um, early in Russia, and and Bill and I did a lot of business together. Um, and I have, I have a, I think the Red Notice book is a is a tremendous book. It's it's nonfiction, as you pointed out. It it reads well. It's got a a great storyline. Um, it's tragic. Um, it's insightful. It's great. It's it's all around a great book. I think Bill sold three million copies of the book. the The problem is, is I I started this. I've been out of Russia more or less since the early two thousands, and and for me to go back and write a nonfiction book would have been really difficult. I mean, I I, I I've you know I can't remember all the people that were involved. I can't I can't fact check. Um, and 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 quite fa- frankly, the uh, if you try to write this story in a factual way, it might not capture the reader's attention. The The details are such that it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be all that interesting. What what I think Josh Haven did, or Josh Gelertner, which is Josh's real name, um, he, he interviewed a lot of the people that were involved in this project, um, this investment project. Um, we, we did, and he, and he, he got stories out of them and, and, and interesting stories. And he weaved them all together, but he still followed our original plot line. And and in that way, he made it a, a really readable and enjoyable book. And in fact, if we have time at the end of this, I'd love to tell you a story about the, the Refuseniks 
um, because in, in, in our research, we, we heard a, a wonderful- Right. A Are you familiar with Goldberg's book, The Dissident? I, I, I'm not, but I'm, 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 I'm familiar with the Refuseniks and, and what, what the Russian intelligence community did to them on the, on the way out of Russia. And, and, and I've got a good story if we have time. Okay, well, we've, I've always got time, John, um, especially for good stories. You wrote a piece for Fortune recently, actually, in, from, from, from the last day of May this year. Uh, and the title, I Got Rich in Russia and Got Out in Time Twice. Here's what I learned about democracy and free markets. It's not a very klein Heinzian title. You're not the kind of guy to shout from rooftops about yourself. Tell me how you got rich in Russia. What is the story? So, so first of all, that I, I did write that essay, and, and Fortune edited it a bit, but they're only, they only insisted that they could pick the title. So that's not my title. That's no, the, I didn't think it would be. I don't think that's the kind of title you would personally choose, but uh, that's what happens when you, you dine with the devil. Um, so uh, how, how did you get rich? So you, you were a youngish man who saw a business opportunity. I mean, how much of the Siberia job is true. Did you just bump into a charming Czech businessman? No, I, well, I was introduced to him. That I didn't. I did not meet Peter in a bar. Um, that's that's a that's a fictional part of the book. But I was introduced to him by a, a colleague from from Merrill Lynch, and and was told that he had been very successful in the Czech voucher auctions, and he knew what he was doing, and he was setting up in Russia, and I should I should work with him. Um, you know, we all we all got to Russia in in 94. I actually went in 92 with my wife and, and spent a couple of weeks there. And, and what I saw in 92 was really disheartening. The, the economy was um, really at a standstill. The command economy was no longer functioning. The, the, the currency didn't work. Um, they were paying workers with, with, with money that was worthless. They were making products that, that weren't any good. People were walking around Moscow with their heads down. There were no no, no goods in the shops. There were no cars on the streets. And, and when I returned again in early 1994, it was a different place. It was, it was, everybody was, was busy. The, 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 you could get anything you wanted if you had the money, what, what, what had function, what had functionally been the black market two or three years earlier was emerging as a free market system. Um, there was just a, there was a, a sense of excitement in the air and and it was all it was all kind of aimed at the the this privatization that was going to take place. The Russians were going to privatize all of their businesses, all of their state-owned businesses over the course of one year, 1994. And and these businesses were businesses were were privatized at literally one to two percent of the value of where the stocks would be trading if they were on a Western exchange, Western European exchange, or in the U.S. And, so we were able to buy stocks so incredibly cheaply. We bought we bought a company called Luke Oil at a three hundred million dollar valuation. Um, that stock, uh, uh, you know, just before Russia invaded Ukraine, that stock was trading at a sixty billion dollar valuation. So, so why wasn't John? Why wasn't Moscow in in nineteen ninety four crawling with young investment bankers like yourself? It was. It was. They were coming in. You know, I got there early. I got there three or four months early. I was ahead of the game. But, but by you know by late 1994, you know Mer Merrill Lynch was setting up an office. Morgan Stanley was setting up an office. Citibank had moved in. Um, it 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 really it was a very exciting place. There were new restaurants opening every week, new hotels. It was, 
I mean, it really, in a lot of ways, Russia in 94 and 95 felt like the center of the universe to me. John, lots of interpretations of what happened in this period. I did a show recently last year, actually, with Catherine Belton. I'm sure you're all too familiar with her book, Putin's People. Yeah, I, I know it well. I mean, I'm sure you know Catherine. To what extent would it be fair to say that this was essentially a, what some people might even suggest was the, the economic rape of the country by not just Russian oligarchs like Abramovich, but also foreign investors like yourself? Well, it was, it was a little bit different in 1994. I mean, you know, none of these companies had any working capital. Um, they couldn't they couldn't turn their factories on. They you know, the you know, Boris Yeltsin was in office. He had a very strong political appointment or political oppo opponent named um, uh, Zuganov, I believe his name was. And he, oh, yeah. He, yeah. He, a nostalgist for the Soviet Union. Yeah. And 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 I think the the the, the brilliant thing that the Russians did and was I think it was ar the architect of it all was a guy named um, Anatoly Chubayas. Mm. He, he was the architect of this architecture of this privatization scheme. Is he, he just realized that if you if you privatized all of these companies, it would be very difficult for Russia to go back to a communist system. Um, and and that I think that was that was why they did it. They didn't really have the choice. You know, China took a long time to privatize itself. They 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 built their companies up and restructured them and got very good prices for them when they sold. I don't think Russia had that luxury. They, they just the, the the economy wasn't in a functional state. Um, but how fair was it the the what what Chubias and, and others planned? I mean, did it essentially mean that ultimately all the and, and and the Russian economy is is mostly built on its on its assets, its its gold, its oil? How much of this was essentially the Re reallocation, redistribution of Russian wealth from the state to private banks. Well, well, it's 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 a little bit complicated. I mean, in the privatizations, um, they did they did privatize all of it. I mean, you know, the government maintained a controlling stake in Gazprom and, and a very large stake in all the rest of the oil companies. So really, they were just creating um, a market for the shares that the companies could go out and, and raise money. Um, the real, you know, the the real transfer of wealth from the government to the oligarchs took place four or five years later um, after um, after uh, Yeltsin resigned and Putin took over, and that was what they call the loans for shares scheme, and that was that was the the real transfer mechanism um, of, of of putting all the assets into the oligarchs' hands, and that happened that happened much later than this book, so. We, we were we were just there for the you know the beginning of the stock market a lot of foreign investors the the Russians kind of pretty much came in after us and pushed pushed most of us out um how, how much association did you have with Yeltsin and his regime his the, the people around him I, I had I had no no connection with them at all I mean they, they were they had a whole host of problems they were dealing with. We, you know, my play here was just, just to, you know, my great hope was that the process would, would work for a few years. When you buy an asset that's trading at a 99% discount and all of a sudden they, they publish an annual report and there's some research on the 
company and it gets listed, you know, it, it can trade at a, you know, an 80% discount. And, and when something goes from a 99% discount to an 80% discount, you know, you've, you've made, you know, 19 or 20 times your money already. So um, I was, I was just hoping the process could, could move forward a bit and it did, it moved forward, you know, all should, the way John, should we and do you look back at this period between, say, around 94 and the late 90s with a degree of nostalgia in the same way some historians look back at the period between the first and second Re Russian revolutions, the, uh, the revolution of March and of, uh, of November as a, as a period where Russia was relatively free and open? You know, I wouldn't call it nostalgia, Andrew. Um, what, it's almost it's almost a sense of disappointment because because things were going so well and um, and and you know the the process of moving to a free market system um, really was progressing well the Russians were playing the game they understood the stock market they liked the stock market they liked the liquidity it, it gave them um, what what really happened is in 1998, Russia went through a financial crisis, and it's, it's a financial crisis that started in Asia and moved to to Russia. and And the IMF went in and they bailed out Russia. They gave them a um, they gave them a package. and And early on in that process, in in October of, of 98, um, Bob Rubin, who was Treasury Secretary um, under Clinton. Um, he, he, he saw, he got reports that that IMF bailout money was ending up in Switzerland and it was ending up in the bank accounts of Russian government officials. And he, and he just, he literally the next day turned the money off to Russia and, and all their banks collapsed. They had a, they had a major crisis. The cash machines didn't work and the country basically defaulted. So, you know, it, it, it's disappointing. It was a, it was a, everything in my mind was going pretty well, um, up until that. And then, you know, Russia just didn't have the institutions. They didn't have a, a central bank system where, where the head of the central bank could tell the, the Boris Yeltsin people, Hey, you can't, you can't just take the money out. You know, you know, that wouldn't happen in, in most places, but it was a new central bank and a new leadership and that, that happened. So. What is the, this, uh, we don't want to give away all the plot, um, John, because we want people to buy the book. Um, but what what are the the tension, the narrative tension? What happens in the book to excite people, to encourage them to turn the page? So so remember, um, Russia was was auctioning off their, all of these great companies, and and auctions were were a number of the best auctions. There was very limited information on them um, because the more the more people that knew about the auction, the the, the higher the valuation would be. The more vouchers submitted the higher the price you would pay. So, so what, what Gazprom did, Gazprom was negotiating with Chubias and said, look, we don't want to be in the auctions. And Chubias said, look, and I'll let you design your auction the way you want. So, so it doesn't, you know, all the investors don't go in there and, and there's nothing left for you guys. And so Gazprom structured the auction where, where it took place in these remote regions where they had business operations. And they made it very, very difficult for people to get to these places. Um, and they held these auctions without really publicizing when they would be and where they would be. Now, we, we, had a, we had a very good contact on the board at Gazprom who was feeding us information. And so we were able to send teams of people um, to these auctions. 
and 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 submit our vouchers and we we did we did really well we got we we in fact we ended up buying so much stock in the voucher that when the company found out they were they were really upset and the management was upset because they hadn't put as many vouchers in as we had and so they called the same guy on the board that 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 we knew who was a kg former kgb official and they said go find out what happened and and so all of a sudden our friend was in a position where he's trying to get our stock back so it was a it was a it was a very tough set of negotiations um, we finally arrived at a, a deal with with Gazprom after um, a lot of Im- implied threats. Um, we we um, and, and we we settled up with them. We 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 turned over a, a, a very large percentage of our stock, 75, 80 percent of our stock. And in return, they gave us GDRs, which would be freely tradable in the London market. So. So, you know, we, we did well. We got a, a security that we were allowed to trade legally. It was registered on the books. Um, we made a lot of money. Um, where those shares went, um, nobody knows. It's, a, it's still a mystery who, who got our, our shares, but um, it was a, you know, it was a lot of money. I mean, whoever took our, the 75% of our stock, you know, did, did well. And any guesses, John, who, who ended up with your stock? I, I think it was I think it was the Gazprom management is my guess. But, and these huge companies were intimately bound up with the state, weren't they? And indeed yeah. the secret services. That's right. That's right. So were you in Browder's camp when it comes to this or Catherine Belton's camp when it comes to interpreting what Belton at least calls KGB capitalism? Yeah, I mean, that that happened. I mean, I, I've. Um, you know, that Putin's people book, I've never read it straight through. I almost use it like a, a reference book. Yeah. It's, like, it's almost like an encyclopedia of, of the bad guys. So um, it's very helpful to me, but I, but I, I haven't read it, but I know her, you, you know, her point is, is that in, you know, after, after um, Yeltsin left and Putin took over that you slowly had a system where the, the intelligence community or the, the KGB insinuated themselves into all these businesses. So these people essentially woke up to the fact that they could muscle in on the money. That's right. That's right. But a lot of them were already there. I mean, you know, if you look at Luke Oil, the the largest shareholder at Luke Oil who had the who had the innocuous title of head of investor relations was a was a guy named um, uh, Leonid Fadun. And he was he was a senior, senior KGB guy who was was the number two guy um, at Luke Oil, and and you know now he's a country gentleman living in England. Um, so he was there. He was there at the beginning. Um, but yes, um, the, the the intelligence community woke up and got involved in all of this. Uh, I love the title of the book, John. The Siberia Job. Of course, it reminds me of the Italian Job. The end of the Italian Job leaves us the movie, of course, with. A bus teetering on the edge of a Swiss mountain, but the Siberia job, I, I'm guessing, ends with clear winners and losers. You know, it's it's all I can say is it's got a happy ending. Um, it's happy got a for who? Happy, um, I'm, you know, I'm. I'm that I'm sounds like a massage, John. What? What? Happy for who? <laughs> you know, it was, I think it was happy for everybody. The Gazprom people got their stock, got a big chunk of their stock back. Peter Peter Kellner. Um, made a bunch of money and was able to go back into the Czech Republic and provide working capital. He went on to, to build a huge industrial empire in, 
in the Czech Republic and Russia. And, and when he died tragically a couple of years ago in this helicopter ski accident, you know, he, he was, you know, worth well over $10 billion. So, and it was his death that triggered your commitment to doing this book. Is that fair? That that's right. That's right. I saw that. I saw the, the news of his death. Um, and, and I just, and I thought to myself, I, I've been wanting to write this story for 30 years. And, you know, if, if I don't do it now, there, there's not going to be anybody left to, to talk to about how to do this story. So, yes, that was the catalyst. Since then, you've, you know, where you became very rich twice, as you say, uh, then you you returned all the, the Kleinheinz money back to the investors. You've also continued the firm, but you're also closely associated with Stanford University. Uh, I think you're something called an overseer at the... Um, uh, at the Hoover Institute. So I'm guessing your your politics are relatively conservative if you're involved with the Hoover Institute. How did this experience inform um, your, your view of democracy and free markets? Um, the, the, the fortune title, you might not like the I got rich in Russia and got out in time twice, but I'm guessing that what you learned about democracy and free markets is more palatable for you. What did it teach you and why did it make you one of the major donors at Hoover and a, and a, and a rather powerful American conservative? Well, I mean, one, one of the, the things, um, one of the initiatives at Hoover is, is, to, is to support and sustain the important institutions of this country. Um, the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is great because we have a, a strong executive and, a, and a, a Supreme Court and a legal a judicial review based legal system and a strong central bank and, and, and two houses of, of, of Congress. Um, you know, with, with when you have when you have those great institutions, you can you can get in trouble as a country an economy can get in trouble. I mean, we, we've had the Depression. We've had the great financial crisis. But but you fall back on those institutions, and they and they eventually kick in, and you and you return to your path of, of growth and prosperity. I think what I learned in Russia is that they, they just didn't have the institutions ready to go when when they when they started moving from a command economy to a free market economy. They didn't have the courts. They didn't have the the business courts where. You know, they, they have they have plenty of law courts in, in, in Russia, but when they make a decision, there's there's no way to review it or appeal it. And so th there's a there's a corruption in the in the, the court. <coughs> there's a corruption in the, the way government operates. And and, and when you, you know, and you see this in places like like India, um, when 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 20 or 25 percent of the people are corrupt, it incentivizes the next five percent of the people to be corrupt too, because if the only way you can get ahead is to break the law or or do something, um, you know, nefarious to to feed your family, you're going to do it. And we're we're quite we're fortunate in the U.S. that 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 most people obey the law, and and it's a very very small percentage of people who cheat in this country. And so the the incentive is to is to do things. The right way. It, Russia didn't have that. They didn't have the institutions in place to 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 for people to do the the right thing. I mean, guys like Anatoly Chubias, he's a Boy Scout. He's a great guy, but he just got run over by all the the bad dudes in in Russia. He couldn't, you know, when you're the only guy doing things the right way, they're going to take advantage of you. But does that 
Why does that make you a, a conservative? I mean, no, nobody would argue against institutions. No one's in favor of corruption. Why am I a conservative? I mean, you know, I believe in the free market system. I think, I think, um, you know, I, I don't, I think you limited government, free market system, individual liberties, um, you know, celebrate what we have in common, not celebrate, you know, what, what, what why we're different. Um, those are all things that are part of the, the conservative mantra. I mean, I'm, 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 I consider myself a very progressive conservative. I'm, I spend a lot of time and money on schools for, for lower income people and building schools for lower income people. I mean, you know, education is the, is the way I got out of, you know, the, the middle-class home that I grew up in. I mean, if, if I hadn't gone to Stanford, I, I would have never had the success I had. And, and, and that's all part of education. So, you know, I, I'm conservative because, you know, the government isn't the, the answer. You, you, you don't you, you don't want your people to be reliant on government. You want them to be reliant on a vibrant free market system. John, I'm sure you're familiar with Fiona Hill and her work. She was on the show a couple of years ago, worrying about what she called the increasingly Russian way of life in America, the deindustrialization of much of America. I'm not sure if she's a conservative or not. She worked for Donald Trump for a while and fell out with him. Are you like Hill and others concerned with America increasingly becoming like Russia and this incre incredibly dramatic disparities between the very wealthy and the rest of the country and the deindustrialization, the disappearance of jobs? What Angus Deaton has also been on the show, won a Nobel Prize called the uh, the deaths of despair in America. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a that, there's a lot in that question on, to unpack. I mean, you know, fortunately, we're in a, a phase right now where there, we're we're reshoring or reonshoring a lot of industrial businesses. I mean, there there's a I think I saw a statistic. There's 150 billion dollars a year of um, capital expenditure in, in manufacturing um, and, and engineering projects going on this year in the U.S. So. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of it's in semiconductors, a lot of it's very high end stuff, but it's also in, in electric vehicle manufacturing. And, you know, a lot of European companies are moving their operations to the southern part of the U.S. because they can they can sign 10 year energy agreements. And and, you know, they, they you can't do that in 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 Europe. I mean, the cost of energy, you know, when when Putin went into the Ukraine, went up 400 500 percent and it and it and it pretty much made almost all industrial businesses in Europe unprofitable. So so people are moving to the US right now at the fastest rate. What what's what's my greatest concern is do we have the human capital here to 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 support that? And you know we need a we need a immigration bill so that people who, who come to this country and get PhDs can can stay and don't have to go home. They can get a green card. We need you know we need the process of 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 um, bringing in, you know, strong workers from overseas. We need we need great education to 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 fill the human capital gap. Um, well, let's end, um, John, with that story. But before that, uh, I assume you've got plans to turn this new book, Josh Haven's book, based on your life, the Siberia job, into a movie. Who's going to play John Kleinheitz? You know, you haven't got Michael Caine now. He's a bit yeah. old. <laughs> So, um, you, you know, I, I, I hope it gets made into a movie. I'm not going to 
Uh-huh. Who do you want to pay? Who, who, who would you like to play a younger version of yourself? Uh, I, uh, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't really care. I'm not going to get into the artistic. I've talked to Bill Browder about this. I think Bill retained his artistic um, uh, rights for, for the red notice. And I think that, that makes it, that makes it a lot harder to get a movie made. I'm, my views, you know, sell it to somebody who agrees to make the movie and let them do whatever they want with it. So, would you play yourself, John, if they asked you? No, no. I'd be the, I'd be the guy, you know, collecting, cleaning out the ashtrays in the Russian hotel. The yeah, those they wish you out. Well, that's a warning for anyone who sees the guy cleaning out the ashtrays in the in the lobby. He's the guy with the money. He's the guy with the power. Finally, John. Uh, Wonderful conversation, a fascinating, uh, fascinating project. And, and, and I think everyone should appreciate the fact that you've come public on all this in your own reticent way, uh, even if we can blame some of the editors for, for Fortune for that rather showy title. Finally, the, the, the story you wanted to tell that, that, oh. that we can end with. Oh, about the re- Refuseniks. Okay. Yes. So as, as your listeners know, the Refuseniks were a group of, of, of Jews who wanted to leave, successful Jews who wanted to leave Russia, and they weren't given permission because the security apparatus um, wanted to make sure that they, they, they left with, with nothing. They wanted to, to take all the wealth that they had accumulated, um, and, and so they would follow them around and keep track of their movements and basically make it so that when they left all their money stayed in the, um, in the, uh, um, in the country and about one of the, one of the wealthiest gentlemen left and, and the KGB guy who was responsible bumped into this guy five or six years later when he came back to to Moscow and the guy, the guy was obviously very, very wealthy. And he, he said, how did you manage to get all your money out of Russia? And he said, um, he said, I, I had a party one night at my, um, my large apartment, and I invited um, five people over from the American embassy. And I, halfway through the party, I took them into a room, and it was, and it was stacked full of $100 bills. And we took all of those $100 bills, and we counted them. And then I burned them. I put them all in the fireplace. And apparently there's a rule in the U.S. Treasury um, system that if if you can verify that that the money has been destroyed, the U.S. Treasury will reissue it to you. And he got affidavits from all these members of the. That's the, brilliant. Yeah. So, and I can't, I can't, I can't verify that story, but I, I, but I believe it to be true. 